Good to be opening God's Word again with you. I hope if you have your Bible, you'll go ahead and open it to Philippians chapter 2. We've been working our way through this book from start to finish, and we're up to the second chapter and the 14th verse. Just to kind of recap very quickly, um, two weeks ago, we went over verses 12 and 13, which commanded us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, we're to be living out, working out our own salvation. That means living a life of obedience to God, a life that's in accord with what God has already made us. He's made us part of his family. He's made us into disciples And what does a disciple do? A disciple learns from and follows his master, right? And what did our master do? Well, a few verses prior, it says that he humbled himself in obedience like, in humility rather, like no one has ever seen. He humbled himself all the way to death on a cross. And we are commanded to have the mindset that he had when he was doing this. That's, we're told that back in verse 5. Have this mind that was in Christ. And we might be tempted to say at something like that, whoa, whoa, that bar is high. I cannot attain to that mindset of Christ. I don't have it in me to do that. And God, speaking through the Apostle Paul in verse 13, gives us some encouragement. He says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's good news, Christians, that we are given God himself. We're given the Holy Spirit. And he comes and lives in us and he helps us will to do the right things, and he helps us actually carry out the right things. That's good news. And last week, we just kind of, we took verse 13, and we looked at some length about this area of how God works through human will. Now, that's the context of our passage. Let's see where he's going next. You know, this has all been based around this big command in verse 12 to work out your own salvation. So let's read our passage today and see where the writer, the Apostle Paul, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, see where he goes next. Philippians 2, 14 to 16. It says this. Do all things without grumbling, or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. Or labor in vain. That's our passage for today. Now when we read this passage. If we're kind of somewhat in tune with the flow of Paul's thought process. We might be tempted to say. Why in the world does he all of a sudden mention grumbling and disputing? Seems like it came out of nowhere. How is this related By the way, do you ask questions like that of the text? I think those are good questions to ask. Um, I think we should ask those. You know, sometimes we don't give the biblical writers enough credit. We don't give God enough credit. We're we're sitting here thinking that uh, maybe these words that we're reading in the Scriptures, that there's some sort of random, unrelated ideas that just come to their mind, and so we never even stop sometimes to ask, how are these things related? 
What is the writer's flow of thought here? We just have to remember, don't we, that these writers are being carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. They're writing exactly what God wanted them to write. And so they're being guided by the very best communicator who has ever existed. Right? So, if they're being guided by the best communicator of all time, there will certainly be reasons why certain things are brought up in the text, right? They're not random. They're not haphazard. They're not disjointed. And our job as Bible interpreters, for one thing at least, is to figure out the flow of the passage and how these ideas are related to one another. We, we have to almost get into the head of the writer, so to speak. That will help us. So, let's think about that for a moment. Um, we've got a passage about obedience, right? With Jesus as the immaculate example, which flows into a command to work out our own salvation by the help of God. And then, right on the heels of that command come these words. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Here's what I think is going on here. It's not too complicated. God is simply expanding on the idea of obedience, and he's giving us a big, massive, neglected area for us to think about. What is it? Well, it's our tendency, our bent, our readiness, our proneness toward grumbling and disputing. Isn't that interesting that he brings it up here? It's something to think about. Do we view this area of life as being as important as God does? Let's examine that a little bit. We'll just have some mental markers up here on the screen. Not a whole lot of information there, just something to let you know where we're at. So, the magnitude of grumbling. You know, if we were writing this passage, which we didn't, but if we were to be the writer in our own ability, in our own thoughts, where would our minds go? as the first area of concern of obedience to God. Maybe it would read something like, you know, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then maybe we'd say, but look out for selfishness or pride. Look out for lust. Anger, resentment, lack of forgiveness. I mean, where would your mind go? What would be the first thing? The Bible deals with all those things in various places, but where does Paul's mind go, who is being guided by God himself? He goes straight to this area. Grumbling. Disputing. Apparently, this is a big issue. Grumbling, we might say complaining, arguing, murmuring, whining, discontent. These things are all bigger than we tend to think. Now, what does the text say about this? The first thing it says is do all things, all things without grumbling or disputing. So it's an overarching, all-encompassing command. It's a command to banish grumbling and disputing in every area of our lives. Kill it. Mortify it. Eradicate it. Right? And just to help us wrap our minds around those two things, those two terms that he uses. First, grumbling. This is, as I just said a second ago, it's basically complaining. 
murmuring. It comes from a Greek word, actually, that even sounds like a disgruntled, under-the-breath murmur. You ever heard of onomatopoeia in school, where a word sounds like the thing that it is, like the word bam sounds like that, sounds like the thing that you're saying, right? I'm told by Greek scholars that this word is an onomatopoeic word. And I won't even try to pronounce it for you so that you don't laugh at me. But it sounds like a murmur. It's like an under the breath. You know. So, this complaining. Listen to how Pastor John MacArthur defines grumbling. I thought this was helpful. He describes it as a negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing arising from the self-centered notion that it is undeserved. Let me read it again. A negative response to something unpleasant, inconvenient, or disappointing arising from the self-centered notion that it is undeserved. So it's thinking so highly of ourselves that we just think we don't deserve any inconvenience. We don't deserve any unpleasant situations. We don't deserve any disappointment. So when we do experience those things, you don't have to live very long to experience those things. Then we complain about them. We murmur. That's grumbling, okay? Now, disputing comes from this, this other term. Disputing comes from the Greek word that we get our English word dialogue from. And it's like an inner dialogue in this case, which turns into a questioning and a doubting of the truth about anything. So these two things are kind of related in this way. We dispute in ourselves about what the actual truth is about something and we come to the conclusion that we just don't deserve to be in this particular situation and so we do what? We complain. We murmur about it. This is a discontent in the mind that comes out in the speech. We let everybody know. Or maybe we just say it to ourselves just... You know, murmuring. It starts with a, a self-centered view of the universe. And it just lets all those around us know when we feel like things aren't going to my master plan. My family has probably heard me say this jokingly. Uh, when we're out in town, you know, it's happened to everybody. Car pulls out in front of you. The Lord graciously gives you the quickness to step on the brakes. You're fine, but I would say, look out. It's his world. We're just living in it. (laughs) And I say it in the moment just to be funny, but we all, sadly, if the truth were told, we all subconsciously, I think, think that way. It's my world. Y'all are just living in it. And we can be so self-centered that we think everything should be catered to us. Why is this line so long? These people need to hurry up so I, I can get out of here. What are they doing driving like that? Don't they know this is my lane? And... We just, we just think that everything should be catered to us, and when it isn't, well, we complain about it. And the magnitude of grumbling is probably not immediately apparent to the fallen mind. But Paul helps us get it when he goes into verse 15. He gives us a little clue about the seriousness of this. The difficulty of this, perhaps. Look at verse 15. He says, That or so that you may be blameless and innocent. 
So by doing all things without grumbling and disputing, we will be on our way, so to speak, to becoming blameless and innocent in practice. And I say becoming because none of us have arrived there yet, have we? We're sinners, and we sin every single day. And through obedience to God and His sanctifying work in our life, in our lives, we are becoming closer to being blameless every day. We still got a long way to go, don't we? But in practice, we are becoming closer to being blameless. We are in the slow process of becoming more like what God has already declared us to be in His sight, really. We see that a lot in the Bible, by the way, this idea of the uh, already but not yet. So positionally before God, we are blameless right now. That's the beauty of justification. Our position before God in God's legal courtroom is blameless. Colossians 1.22 says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He is going to present us that way. Jude 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He is the one able to present us blameless. What God does in the gospel is awesome. Isn't it? Awesome. He takes blameworthy people and gives them Jesus' righteousness. Makes them blameless before God. And God treats us as if we had lived the perfect life that Jesus lived. And God treated Jesus as if he had done all the wrong that we had done. And this is our standing before God. If we have put our faith in Christ, we are blameless positionally. But in practice, in actual practice, are we blameless? No. We sin every day, right? We struggle every day. One day we won't struggle with sin anymore. When we are glorified in heaven, no more sin, no more temptation, no more sinful desire in here. That will be a thing of beauty. But we haven't made it there yet. We're not there yet. Right now we're on this journey toward blamelessness in practice. And this sin here of grumbling and disputing is one of such magnitude that if we were able to conquer it, we would be well on our way to being truly blameless and innocent in practice. A supporting passage for this is found in James uh, chapter 3. Turn over there. James chapter 3. I want you to read along with me, or follow along with me, to read what James says about this. This is James 3, and we'll just read verse 2 for time's sake. James 3, 2. It says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So apparently the sins of the tongue, which would include grumbling, complaining, murmuring, those kind of sins of the tongue are like the last thing to go in our sanctification. It's what sticks around 
the longest. James says, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, well, he's a perfect man then. He's advanced in his sanctification. If a person doesn't sin in their speech, he's already, he's already conquered a lot of sins to get to that point. You know, I thought about this. It's, it's kind of like when you're trying to lose weight. You know, you're cutting calories, you're exercising, and you really just want this tummy fat to come off, right? But you can't control which fat comes off first. There's no scientific diet that, uh, that will just target one area, like your belly. You know, eat this way and your belly fat will just come right off. Our bodies decide what calories it needs to burn and which fat it's going to burn first. Maybe your faith thins up first, you know. Maybe your legs thin up next and then your arms or something. But what is it that always comes last? The part that you wanted to get rid of in the first place. Right around here, right? That's what sins of the tongue are. They're like the last thing to go. Sins of the tongue, mm, difficult to conquer. And just to get a feel for how powerful and deadly our tongues are and how they're so, why it is so difficult to conquer, conquer um, sins of speech, James goes on to compare our tongues to a, a, a fire. It's a small fire. But it sets entire forests ablaze. And he says it stains our whole body. Setting on fire the entire course of life. And it is set on fire by hell, James says. James 3, 6. Sins of speech, like grumbling, are serious. They do a lot of damage, a lot of damage. So, back to Philippians, if you're in James. In fact, flip back to Philippians. If we can keep in mind the teaching of James there, we can see how Paul would cut straight to the chase in this text. When it comes to our obedience and working out our own salvation, he goes straight to the attitudes which work their way out through our tongues, grumbling, murmuring, complaining, disputing. And let me just say, you know, plainly as possible, it is to be our constant project and battle, yours and mine, if you are a Christian, with the gracious help of the Holy Spirit to stop grumbling. And complaining. Stop complaining, he says. Whatever you do, do it without complaining. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, he said. Now, in order to get ourselves on the right track with these things, first of all, we need a, a, a mind recal. Right? A mind recalibration. We need to first see grumbling and complaining and disputing for what it really is. It is a huge deal. And so to do that, let's talk about the backdrop of the sin of grumbling. Why is this such a big deal to God? Well, we live in a culture of constant grumbling, don't we? Everywhere. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, our sinful natures have been rewired to grumble. We strike up conversations with total strangers with complaints. Man, this weather is ridiculous, isn't it? Man, it's been crazy. Can't deal with this. And we've bonded over a complaint. We arrive late somewhere. We say, I'm sorry, y'all. The traffic's totally horrible. I can't believe they're still doing 
construction on I-20. And instantly there's four or five other people piping up with their own bad traffic story. And we've bonded over a complaint. We go to a restaurant. We try our food. We say, pretty good, but not as good as so-and-so's. These seem like little benign examples I'm using, but I'm just trying to make the simple point that we love to complain. We love it. And we love to enjoy, or we love to join in with others when they complain. And there's seemingly nothing that we won't complain about. It's in our fallen nature, isn't it? Our fallen nature is to complain, to murmur, to grumble. A man named Scott Hubbard, who is a writer for Desiring God, he says this. Listen to this quote. Many of us wake up set to grumble and move through our days murmuring at a great variety of objects that get in our way. We may dress it up in nicer words, venting, being honest, getting something off my chest, or even sharing a prayer request. But God knows what we're doing. And if we really think about it, we often do too. Grumbling is the hum, the constant hum is what he's talking about. The grumbling is the hum of the fallen human heart and often a hallmark of Christians' indwelling sin. Now listen to the end of his quote. And that makes non-grumblers a peculiar people in this world. As Paul goes on to tell us, those who do all things without grumbling burn like great suns in a world of darkness, end quote. I love that quote. So let's talk about shining like stars. That's the title of the message this morning. Here's why God commands us to do all things without grumbling and disputing. It's because when we go against the grain of our flesh and of our culture and of our surroundings, and when we quit complaining, we start shining. When we quit complaining, we start shining. Megan Hill is a writer also. Listen to what she says. When everyone complains, the one person who doesn't stands out. In a world where grumbling over the weather and the state of the roads is just ordinary conversation, a contented Christian shines with gospel radiance. I love that. So really... We are to think of this attitude of fighting against grumbling, of doing all things without grumbling. We're we're to think of this attitude not only as an act of obedience just between us and God, but an act of obedience to God that actually makes people who don't know Christ notice. Okay? Look at verse 15 again. Philippians 2.15. That you may be blameless and innocent... Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. This kind of reminds us of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? Matthew 15, let me read you a couple verses. If you're taking notes, it's Matthew 15, 14 to 16. Jesus said this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's Matthew 5. 
Christians are to be like lights shining in the darkness. And the purpose of all this shining is ultimately that people will see it and give God the glory. Do you remember that little children's song, This Little Light of Mine? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, it says. And another verse says, hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. And the kids sing it and they yell that, no, they love that. Well, guess what grumbling does? You got your light, and it's like throwing a big old shade over the light. You're supposed to be emitting this light into the darkness And here comes grumbling with its just huge shade blocking the light. Lights are meant to shine, right? And they shine brightest in the dark, actually. Which is encouraging for us. You know, we like to lament the world that we live in. It is a dark place, but the light shines brighter in dark places, doesn't it? Have you ever been in a room Where it's so dark you can't even see your hand in front of you. I mean, it's pitch dark. If somebody were to just, in that room, just poke a little pin-sized hole in the wall and shine a light through there, it would be bright. Very bright. Because it shines brighter against the darker backdrop of that room. And that's what Paul's saying here as well. The world is crooked and twisted and dark. It's messed up. But you, you are to be lights. And the word used there, and the reason I used it up here, is often used for stars. You're like luminaries. You're like stars shining brightly against the black sky. And this is how we're going to shine by God's grace. By doing all things without grumbling. You know, when we think about the sin of grumbling, if we're familiar a little bit with the Old Testament, our mind might go straight to the Israelites. You remember the grumbling that came from the Israelites? When God brought them out of Egypt, you know, they were slaves in Egypt. They had it horrible in Egypt. Pharaoh treated them horrifically hard, merciless. And they they cried out to God for help, and he gives them help. He sends Moses, his servant, and God brings his people out of that place with his mighty arm. And they hadn't been out of Egypt very long, and they hit a barrier called the Red Sea. And the Bible says God hardened Pharaoh's heart to come after them. And so he's, he's bearing down on them with his full army. And their backs are against the Red Sea. And what did Israel do? They grumbled. Listen to it. Exodus 14, 10 to 12. When Pharaoh drew near... The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And even in their complaining, God had mercy on them over and over and over again. He protected them. That time as well as plenty of other times. And God actually calls them in this parallel passage to Philippians, actually. Paul picks up on this verse. God actually calls his people Israel in Deuteronomy 32, 5. He calls them a crooked and twisted generation. The very thing he wants us to be distinct from 
in Philippians 2. So there's that interesting parallel there. You should look at that sometime. Here's another big thing to think about in regards to grumbling and complaining. In the book of Numbers, in verse 5 of chapter 21, Numbers 21, 5, it gives us some insight as to who the Israelite complaints were actually against, if we weren't sure. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. But that's big. The people spoke against God. And that's an important concept for us to grasp as well, isn't it? Complaints and grumblings, they're not just going out into the air. Whether we realize it or not, they're aimed at something, at someone. Let me frame it this way. If we believe that God is sovereign over all things, which we do, don't we? Since He's sovereign over all things, who is it that we're actually complaining against then when we complain? We're ultimately complaining against God. We're saying, we're not happy with the way you're running your universe, God. Or maybe we'd say, my universe, God. Isn't that what we're saying? Isn't that the logical conclusion of our complaining? Or maybe it's a slightly different twist. Maybe with our complaining... We're actually functionally denying what we say we believe. Listen to Pastor Brian Davis, pastors in Philadelphia. Listen to this quote. If the Lord is entirely sovereign, which he is, and if he is always good to you in Christ, which he is, well then, when we grumble and complain in any circumstance, We're actually denying God's involved. Denying that he's being good. End quote. Now that should cause us to pause for a second. We really ought to think about these things. With our entire theology, what we believe coming to bear on this. And when we do that, we'll begin to see that grumbling and complaining, it is a massive sin. Massive. And it's against God. And it's a massive hindrance to the gospel itself, God's good news. And so it makes sense why God commands us here, do all things without grumbling and disputing. How could we tell others about a good and sovereign God who is working all things for the good of his people, according to Romans 8.28, while simultaneously complaining about the very things we say he's sovereign over? That doesn't compute, right? How is that going to further our message? How is that supposed to adorn the message of the gospel, right? How is that supposed to commend God and his goodness to others? Yes, he's good, we say, and yes, he's sovereign, but let me complain about this. (laughs) But you say, somebody might listen to us and say, wait a minute, aren't those things that God has allowed or, or, or brought about for your good? That's what you believe, right? We, we got to bring our tongues and our minds and our attitudes in alignment with what we say we believe. That's the essence of this. Are you seeing that? And this carries over into every area of life. I mean, social media, the political climate of our day, whew, it can get hostile quickly. Can it? 
And we can get sucked right into complaining about our political opponents. I see it all over social media. It, it can get nasty. And I believe very strongly what Trevin Wax says in regards to that. He says, quote, It's hard to joyfully and consistently proclaim the gospel when all you do is complain about your mission field. End quote. Do we... Do we want people of the opposite political viewpoint, whatever that might be, to just go away and shut up? Or do we want to see people of that persuasion saved by the power of the gospel? If the goal is, the people, is to see people saved, then constantly complaining about their politics is not going to get very far. That's not being a light. It's not commending the gospel to those people. That's commending a political agenda. It tells them we care more about winning a political argument than we do about their soul. It elevates a political message over or at least equal to the message of the gospel. May it not be so among God's people. May we not be known for our political complaining, but by our gospel joy. Our gospel readiness, where we do all things without grumbling or disputing. Now, just assess yourself. I told my wife when I was studying this, I said, man, we're all going to have to wear steel toe boots on Sunday. Stepping on my own toes. But assess yourself. What is it that you complain about? Everybody has slightly different things that they complain about. But I'm encouraging you, exercise some self-awareness. Try to spot what it is that you constantly complain about. Make a mental note of it. Be aware of what you're doing and ask God to help you spot it and correct it. Ask Him to help you kill this sin. This dangerous, joy-zapping, gospel-hiding, selfish sin of grumbling. And I think right here in the text, we get some practical help how to do that. This is the final point. The antidote for grumbling. Oh, what is it? Tell me, please. I need help. Look at verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life. What is the word of life? Well, it's God's word, yes, but specifically, it's the gospel. The gospel is what brings life. It is the word that tells us how to have eternal life through Jesus. So, again... We've circled all the way around to where we get to a lot, it seems like. The very basic thing of the gospel. By holding fast to the gospel, we will be less prone to complain. You know, I've always tried to reinforce to myself and to you, be constantly preaching the gospel to yourself every day. Meditate on the truths of the gospel. That just means think about them a lot. Do some sustained thinking and meditating about what Christ has done for you. You know, our attention spans in our day are pretty short, aren't they? We can't give sustained thought to anything for five minutes, it's difficult. But make a conscious effort to think about the goodness of God in Christ for five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, sustained with no distractions. And find other points throughout the day to think about it. And find some scripture that specifically talks about elements of the gospel and meditate on those for a while. 
And when we really start to think about how much we have in Christ, organically, grumbling just starts to fall away. It changes the way you view the world. It changes the way you view your opponents. It changes the way you view little inconveniences. It changes your perspective on everything. Jesus changes everything. And Paul wanted this very strongly for the Philippians because at the end of verse 16, he says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. To know that his Philippian brothers and sisters were complaining, grumbling, disputing about their situation would have been a great discouragement to Paul. He would wonder... Do they really know the blessings that they have in Christ? They don't talk like they know them. But on the other hand, if they were doing all things without grumbling and disputing, and in that way they were shining like stars in the world, he would be greatly encouraged to know that God had done an eternal, lasting work through Paul at Philippi, and that would bring him great joy in the day of Christ when he stands before God and answers for what he did with his time and his effort. So, that's my encouragement to you this morning from the Word of God. Shine like stars in a dark world by doing all things without grumbling and disputing. Just in closing, recruit someone to help you. Are you married? Use your spouse. Do you have a friend? Use your friend. A family member, anybody, ask them to help you spot your complaining. It is very difficult sometimes to even know you're doing it. We don't even realize it. It's just become this unconscious part of our life. So, Give that person permission to point it out to you. And don't get upset when they do. Just say thank you. It is a grace for someone to point it out to us when we're complaining. So really recruit them to help you and work as a team to kill grumbling. And I just wonder, what if we were known for our lack of grumbling? What if people rarely, if ever, heard you grumble or complain? What if they just saw all the time joy in the gospel and over what the Lord has done? Is that possible? I think it is. I think we have sadly few good examples to follow in that, but yes, it is possible. So let's not settle for some status quo. Everybody complains. I mean, come on now. No, do everything, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Shine like stars. Be a counter of blessings instead. My last thought is this. What if, what if the reason why the Lord has not brought a greater revival to our town, to our city, to our nation, is because, what if it's because we are so much like the world in our grumbling, in our complaining, that it has hindered the progress of the gospel. But here's the good news. I want to leave you with this. We can change today. Right now, we can change. By God's grace, we can start fresh We can decide we're going to immerse ourselves with the gospel. We're going to slowly, with the gospel grip, choke out grumbling. And we can be the people God has called us to be. Amen? Amen. Would you ask God to help you right now? Let's pray. Father, we long to be pleasing to you. And we long to be pleasing to you in this area. 
Help us to be fighting, battling against this sin, this tendency to complain, to grumble, to murmur, to think everything should be perfect for us, should be catered to us, should revolve around us. Lord, we want to shine as lights in the world. We want to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, like this passage said. Lord, would you just use this passage, not only what's already been preached, Lord, but in the thoughts of your people going out of this place. May they recall it to mind. May they go back and read the passage and meditate more on it. And would you use this passage to shake us out of apathy regarding this area of sin? Lord, thank you that you have not abandoned your complaining people. You're very patient. You have stuck with us. You have forgiven us. Even when our obedience in this has been lackluster. Thank you for your mercy. Would you now, Lord, take complainers and make us into joyful worshipers? Would you take grumblers and make us joyful sons and daughters? All for your glory, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.